You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Listeners, this is Rupert. Um, this week's interview is with um, several gentlemen um, in, involved with and behind uh, Seven Films, the fantastic, you know, cult DVD releasing company. Um, I talked to Evan Husney, David Gregory, and John Cregan, and um, really great conversation with all three um, fascinating and entertaining gentlemen. Um, and we talked about Birdemic and James Wynn among other things, and, and lots of cool uh, movies. But go check out their website, Severn Films, and their Twitter, uh, Twitter backslash Severn Films. Um, and they also have a Facebook page. Um, you should check it out for all their upcoming releases. They have some new stuff like Psychomania and some other things coming out in October and next, next year. Um, really great stuff. Um, I think you'll enjoy the interview. I just wanted to ask each of you how you individually became involved with Severn Films. I know you guys have a history prior to that, a lot of you um, producing DVDs and stuff like that, so I just wanted to give the listeners a general sense of where you guys are coming from before Severn, and then how Severn started. Uh, hi, this is David Gregory, and uh, with regards to how we got Severn started, uh, John and I were working at uh, Blue Underground, and I've been working there since its inception, because prior to that I've been working with uh, Bill Lustig at uh, Anchor Bay. And prior to that, uh, Carl Deft and I had uh, formed a company called Blue Underground in England where we were releasing uh, similar sort of films on VHS, although we only did about, we had about 10 or 12 releases. But anyway, we got to a point at Blue Underground where the, um, uh, where the new releases were, were definitely drying up. And... Um, John and I and Carl uh, in London got to talking about how there were still a fair few titles out there that we thought uh, deserved the special edition treatment. And Gwendolyn was the first film we picked up. And actually, Gwendolyn was a title that um, that I'd been talking about for a while but couldn't get any enthusiasm from, from any of the companies that I was working with. And so um, John and I and Carl talked about picking it up and we did and we spoke to a distributor and they got very excited about it and so did everybody else at this dinner we were at in Las Vegas because lots of people had seen it on cable and uh, obviously remembered Tony Kitane from the 80s and it was uh, quite an exciting film and uh, so we picked that up and a few other films and uh, left Blue Underground and started Severin. Cool. Cool. So, John, how did you become involved? Were you there from the beginning, too? Yeah, well, I was at Blue Underground pretty much from the beginning. I had started um, editing freelance for David when uh, it was still, when Blue Underground still had its association with Anchor Bay. So I was editing uh, featurettes and things for basically David working for Bill Lustig and then David working with Carl uh, for UK clients. And then when Bill started Blue Underground as a full-time enterprise, I came on as a full-time editor there. And uh, basically things just developed into the point where the three of us, uh, David, Carl, and I broke away to start Severin. 
Actually, the first the first job that John did with me was uh, doing the sound editing on the Manson Family, the Jim Bambeva film that Carl and I had come in to, to finish. Um, and then, Evan, how did you join in the mix? Um, let's see. A couple of... I, I met... Um, well, I was uh, working for Troma, actually, before um, uh, Severin, and I met uh, John, David, and Carl in New Orleans. Was that two years ago? No. no. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it was two. No, it was two years ago. I think. I think it was two years ago. Yeah, it was two years. Can't believe it. So um, I met. uh, I was working for Troma, uh, producing um, uh, a few of their DVDs. I produced uh, Combat Shock Special Edition, uh, the the last horror film DVDs for Troma, and then there was there was a a convention for our uh, distribution company because we were were all put out by the same distribution company at the time and they they had a little sort of uh, uh, convention down in New Orleans and uh, and uh, these guys were the only people to uh, uh, put together a presentation that I thought was they had a sense of humor that was pretty cool and and the stuff that they were showing um, and I just really wanted to work from them from the beginning and they and they seemed like uh, and we really got along and hit it off, started talking about films and... <laughs> Hanging out with Tesla. Oh, yeah, that's right. Really? Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We, we all thought it was... I totally forgot about this. We, we thought it was uh, the uh, convention, um, the special guest of the convention, because uh, like all day you'd be watching presentations and going out to dinners and things. And then they had, they had Tesla as the special attraction, and we sort of thought it was funny and i thought it was funny in an ironic way but and and then and then we we went to the show and we're all having a good time with tesla and then i remember uh we went back to the hotel bar and this 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 girl comes out and goes uh you know we're we're having drinks and she and and she comes oh you should you should come follow me follow me and so we followed her into this elevator and then we went up to the top floor to the truman capote suite um i remember and then we went in there, and uh, in there it was like, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was like all these nerdy guys from the distribution company, you know, uh, sprawled out, and Tesla was in there with their acoustic guitars jamming out. <laughs> and it was like uh, all these, you know, higher-ups at Warner Brothers and uh, Tesla and us. Nice. And, and the of, future of Severin became crystal clear at that moment. It was very, <laughs> yeah. very polarizing, Tesla. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was great. Uh, that was, and then and then from then on there, I was like, uh, yeah, I need I need to work with these guys. So <laughs> cool, very cool. Um, I would rather work with Tesla. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very nice. Well, you're still working on that, John. So that's cool. <laughs> that's right. He is it. What's what's the story behind that? Is that a joke or is there any Tesla connection? Totally a joke. Oh no, there is one. Well, John's, really? John's just directed a film and he's trying to get a Tesla song in it. Oh, seriously? Wow, very nice. John, can you yeah, talk about that? Yeah, negotiation. Oh, wow. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I heard a Tesla song in a movie. That that could be pretty choice. Absolutely. Um, David, I was just looking at the bio on the site, and um, so you were, you've done a ton of special features, and actually I wasn't even aware there was... It lists a Badlands special edition. In, yeah, that, that was for the UK edition. It didn't come out here. Yeah, I need to get that. I'm a huge fan. What did you guys do for that specific disc? We did a 25-minute uh, featurette called Absence of Malik. Nice. And it didn't have... Um, obviously didn't have Terrence Malik in it. 
And uh, but it had Martin Sheen, Sissy Spacek, Jack Fisk, and Billy Weber, the editor. Oh, and it was it was a pretty fun piece. And actually, we did off uh, Roy Frumpkis, We did get an in, a vintage interview with Terence Malick, an audio interview, which obviously a rare as rocking horse shit. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> they, um, uh, but uh, Warner's didn't want to use it because they didn't have they they didn't put it on because it's Warner's. You know, if it was. If it was Anchor Bay or Blue Underground, we would have definitely put it on. But Warner Brothers need, like, files of uh, clearances and stuff. So it didn't work out, unfortunately. So what but, the, but the featurette was one we were really happy with. That was one of the ones that we did uh, when John first started working with us at Blue Underground. Excellent. That's a fantastic film, a favorite of mine. Um, yeah. Is that disc? I was trying to find it on Amazon UK. Is it on? Um, it is it? I don't know if it's still in print. It was oh. quite some time ago now, okay. but it was also it was also on the Dutch release as well, which is uh, uh, an English language release. Excellent! I'm going to track that down. Very cool. Um, okay, well, I was going to say, uh, um, well, I just had some quick questions for Evan about Birdemic um, and and James Gwynn. That's pronounced. I'm pronouncing that right, Evan. No, Win. Win. Like, my bad. Win. 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 <laughs> well, actually, for all you guys, because obviously you were releasing Birdemic, and how did you guys become involved with that film? That's a really interesting phenomenon at this moment. Uh, well, um, while, while I was at Troma, um, you know, uh, every year they did the uh, Troma Dance Film Festival there um, in, during the Sundance Film Festival. So I was attending, um, sort of managing that festival, and then I had also I had programmed. Uh, um, well, myself and another person had programmed uh, David's film. Um, David had ma- uh, made a film, and we had um, programmed that as one of the main features for the festival. And um, so David was there at Sundance as well. I was there. And um, someone um, who we also met, we programmed a short film, this guy named Bobby Hacker, who now is involved in um, the Birdem- you know, the pandemic phenomenon now as well, working on various things. But anyway, so we were at, we were at, uh, we were in Park City, and... Um, Basically, like three days in a row, we kept seeing this, like, run-down Nissan Quest van, like, on its last leg, uh, crawling down Main Street, because the Sundance Film Festival is basically comprised of this one Main Street where all the action is. And there was this van, uh, you know, uh, descending down Main Street, and it it was uh, covered in fake blood. Uh, It had, like, a taxidermy eagle on it. And tiny, teeny posters uh, of this movie, and it was very ambiguous. And then it had uh, really loud screeching, bird screeching sounds coming out of it, ear-piercingly loud. <laughs> and um, for three days in a row, we were convinced that it was some sort of animal protest or PETA <laughs> thing. We weren't, we weren't sure really what it was. And then the whole thing with Sundance is it's just an, it's just an unending, um, uh, unwinnable uh, uh challenge to, to basically take your flyers for your thing and post it up everywhere and then everybody else just covers yours up in three minutes. It's just, it's awful. And so we kept covering up all these Birdemic flyers and <laughs> we started associating it with that van and we're like, well, maybe it's a documentary about bird habitats or something. You know, I, I don't know. And, and, then, and then it wasn't until we actually engaged the guy that we found out that um, it was indeed a feature film, um, sort of an homage to the birds, obviously, and explained it as um, you know, birds, uh, d- you know, descending on this small town and attacking people. And then I, and then he handed us this handbill that was really, uh, you know, extremely low res, uh, key art. And then on the back the synopsis was, com- was pretty much broken English. 
And then on there, it said, like, uh, special appearance, Tippy Hedren. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> you know, what is this? And so um, myself and Bobby Hacker, we went, um, we, we went back to where we were staying where we had Internet access. And, and we began to research a lot of things about the director. And we just put in this incredible context, um, for, you know, you know uh, from that where we saw the trailer. I don't, I don't know if you've seen, like, the original trailer he had where it was, like, a minute and a half of – absolute silent footage of just panning shots through this town and you're like turning up your volume in your computer like what's happening and then um about a minute and a half later it just explodes with these just like you know really you know low res almost like super nintendo graphic version (laughs) flying around and exploding and we're like wow we got to see this and then we put this whole thing together wow this is actually his third film and then reading on his imdb profile that you know, he he's James Wynn, also known as the master of the romantic thriller, trademark sign. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we, we weren't actually sure if this was a put on or, or like some stunt or whatever. And then it, it really wasn't until we saw he had a little impromptu screening at a bar at literally, I think, like the last day of Sundance, like one of the, the last days. And um and that was like at the height of the uh, economy uh, crisis. And so like not many people were there at Sundance that year. So it was like a ghost town by that time. And and we went there and we were literally, I think there was like um, some of our friends went and we went to the screening and we were like probably one out of, or I was like one out of like nine people in total who were there from the beginning. And uh, he was very enthusiastic saying, come see my movie, come see my movie. And um, you know, he had a little stuffed bird on his shoulder and he's hoarding people in and he's just, it's just like, it's just like Eddie's, like he's at his Hollywood, uh, premiere. And, um, he, um, you know, he, he said, oh, oh, uh, please take picture with the Eagle. So we all took picture with his Eagle together. And then he bought everybody a round of drinks to sort of convince them to stay for the movie. And then, uh, we all sit down and have drinks and, and then, and, and then, and then, and then the, the, uh, movie runs. And uh, it just blew our minds. It was unlike anything we had ever seen before. I was sort of in and out the whole time. I had I was I was there for like you know the first bit of it. Then I had to step out to to manage uh, some of the the, uh, the the trauma dance stuff. But Bobby was there the whole time, taking in all of this movie. And um, and then um, that's sort of how we met him. And um, you know we were trying to work out a deal with him between trauma when I was there, and it's nothing. Just really, it didn't really work out. And so obviously. Um, David and John and Carl really wanted to, to see this film, so we sent them a copy, and then I think within and then so you, you should take it from there, David. What did you think when you? Yeah, basically, up? basically, Evan had been on about this film and on about this film, <laughs> and we were and we were and like Evan said, we were there in 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 Sundance and hearing um, Bobby just enthuse about this this experience of seeing this movie was uh, was insane. Uh, but it could yeah. never live up to the excitement that, that and, and then we went back to the trauma house as well and tried to get a copy at two in the morning off James when Evan was uh, Evan was calling the guy up on his cell phone to try and get a copy and was not uh, was not getting anywhere. But anyway, they, Evan finally sent us a copy because trauma uh, weren't interested in it, and we were like, all right, we'll watch this bloody film that he's been not shut up about. <laughs> And, uh, and we, the three of us, sat down and watched it, and lo and behold, we were just as entertained as we had led, been led to believe that we would be. So uh, from then on, we were like, okay, we have to get this movie, and uh, and we got right behind it, gave it a, gave it its proper Hollywood premiere, and then uh, <laughs> started taking it all around the country and around the world. Very nice. So it's been getting a lot of attention. I mean, you guys getting a lot of um, 
heat for that movie, like a lot of uh, positive buzz. People are really excited about the DVD that's coming out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been, uh, it's been the, the re- response we've got from from taking the movie all around has been, you know, just unprecedented for us. It's been huge. Um, cover of the New York Times and CBS News and all that kind of thing is just stuff that, that doesn't happen with the films that we usually put out. So it's been... Uh, <laughs> It's been pretty. Well, it's the sort of thing that doesn't happen with this sort of film either, to be honest. Yeah. So it's been uh, it's been really quite interesting that it really has just picked up and snowballed into this sort of phenomenon. What What has you guys' experience individually been with James himself? I'm just really curious because my first initial thought when I saw it was, you know, this is this has got to be bullshit. I can't believe. <laughs> <laughs> that there's, you know, there's the sound editing issues and other things. I'm just like, I can't believe that this is a, sort of a put on, like somebody maybe trying to ape the success of something like The Room. And you can't ape that though. That's the thing. That's what, this guy would have to be Orson Welles in order to pull this off. As, I agree. As, but, it's sort of what uh, I've come to now is realizing that you're right. That it must be. But he's just that. That's just how he makes films. That's just his thing. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the only thing that. Sorry. Go ahead, John. No, I was just saying that I, he's cinematically feral. That would be the term <laughs> I would use. That, you know, you've got a guy that's, you know, uh, basically 100% passion and, uh, you know, the, the actual technique is somewhere below 100%. Let's just put it that way. But, I mean, I, I, it's, it's honestly, it's always shocking to me when people steadfastly insist that this is a put-on. Um, you know, to me, it's like Birdemic is sort of a Rorschach test for the viewer more than anything else. Uh, and it's interesting to watch, you know, watch an audience and watch how they react. And then it's interesting to see when people actually get indignant that this actually can't be real. <laughs> uh, you but know, there's it's, one, uh, there's yeah. one thing that like, uh, I think, uh, negates the idea that it's a put on is the fact that he's been, this is his third film. And the fact that he has two other movies that he's made over the past 10 years um, that are obviously made way before he met us and, you know, whatever. And, and uh, you know, those films are pretty amazing, too. Yeah, he would have to be like a Manchurian candidate, basically. <laughs> like somebody that Vietnam's been over here 30 years ago with the idea <laughs> of, of pulling this over on the guy that runs Fantasia Fest. Yeah, but exactly. the thing is, but the thing is that... that that, I mean, it's also it's also not easy to make a movie this uh, shall we say entertaining because um, because a lot of a lot of movies come out that are that are and we see a lot of them I and mean, we get sent a lot of shot on video movies and they're not it's, some of them aren't necessarily that bad but they're not interesting they're uh, they can be kind of uh, you know dull whereas Bedemic was and that's not all of the things we get sent but some of them. Uh, but Bademic was entertaining from beginning to end, and that's that's not easy to do. And, and it's, it's just way too real. I mean, it's just I think it's just too real for some people. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's too real for people. That's right. The, the, some people just can't handle the reality. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because I think that um, if you look at Bademic from a from a comedic standpoint, I mean, the the like to to actually concoct the timing of the edits. That, that he puts in there or the way that the audio drops out or just the way his, the, he lines up the shots. I mean, you would have to be some sort of genius. Like, I, I don't think even Tim and Eric could strive or people like that could strive to. <laughs> not even close, or, yeah. Not yeah. even close to the, uh, 
to the to the to the to the filmic language of this movie. No, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. I mean, and even just little throwaway lines like the I always remember the broad the news broadcast where the woman adds at the end, "Such as seals." Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's such a great like my wife and I have been doing that line for a long time. Just just throw that in randomly. Such as seals. Such. <laughs> but yeah, everything about it, the all the all the aspects of filmmaking, the dialogue, the acting, it just I it's like you said. John, perfect storm of crap. I can't, it just never does, have I seen something come together like that. Well, I think what makes it really great is actually the structure of the movie, that, you know, it's sort of two movies in one, where the first half, the romantic half, uh, you know, you've got a film. I, what, the way that I describe it to people is it's like Glenn or Glenda meets playing Knife from Outer Space, where the first half of the movie is the achingly personal half for James, where he's trying to, you know, give his message to the world in so many different ways, because it's such a personal story for James, and in the same way that Glenn or Glenda was for Ed Wood. And then the second half is when the birds attack and all hell breaks loose, and it, you know, goes into plain night from outer space mode. But for me, the the best part of the movie is that first half, especially when you get to know James yeah, and learn more and more about James, and you just see that it's like a Thomas's English muffin of a movie for James, where it's like every nook and cranny is something you know that's you know eight carved out of his personal life, and there's and there's there's actually a lot of pain in there, uh, personal <laughs> for James. <laughs> um. So he's so is he a huge environmentalist? Like, what is his deal? Like, he he seems to push that agenda pretty hard. Yeah, I, I compared to most filmmakers, I guess I, I wouldn't say huge environmentalist, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I, yeah, and, and he's really enthusiastic about Al Gore's film. <laughs> yes. He likes Al Gore's film a lot. Yeah, he also likes the teach of the mentalist. Because the the whole when we um. Uh, flashing now back to Sundance, um, following the screening, the original screening, um, you know, it was sort of confirmed that this thing was all real when when he delivered when he forced a Q and A session on the seven <laughs> people that were there, and he started asking people what they thought about depth of field photography and uh, <laughs> asking, uh, you know, or basically telling people what his influences were, and then he really delved deep into Apocalypse Now and how. Uh, the van in the film driving down Highway One is just like you know the uh, the boat and like all the people on the boat in Apocalypse Now and wow. how, he, how he's really influenced by um, um, uh, Al Gore's uh, um, In Inconvenient Truth and wow. you can even see lines directly lifted from that stuff. But anyway, you know he, he's he's very enthusiastic about about uh, those films. Well, as far as the documentary, Evan, are you heading that up? The one that's being put on a DVD. Um, yeah, well, um, me and, um, me and Bobby Hacker, the one that I was telling you about who was, um, also present during the Sundance screening, um, have been following James, um, actually, um, right as, uh, Carl, David, and John basically gave the green light that they wanted to pick up this movie, even before we signed with him, we sort of got on the road and started driving around with James and following him around, and basically, you know, we had thousands of questions we wanted to ask him, you know, obviously about the movie. And so, um, we, we followed him around for a bit and, and have been, you know, since when did we start? Like last August, we started filming him, I think. It was, it was, it was before then, I think. It was, yeah, right, before we signed, it was right before we signed for Demo. Yeah. 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 So it was sometime last year, like July or August, I think. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess you guys were actually filming at Sundance as well because this footage of this well, whole legendary screening. 
Yeah, that, <laughs> that one is called. But we didn't officially um, start under the guise right. of making a documentary um, until... At, until we say, well, right as we signed, because we have the signing on film, don't we? So you were already filming at that point. Right. Exactly. So we've been following him around and, um, you know, and, and really sort of chronicling the experience of, of James Wynn, who is, um, I think John once said uh, that he's uh, uh, cinema's greatest dreamer. Um, <laughs> Very nice. And, and, and uh, you know, just following him and, and um, you know, really getting to know him and what his, his goals were, you know, to direct, uh, you know, his next film would be $20 million budget or maybe even $200 million. Wow. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, you know, being mentioned in The Hollywood Reporter and then actually to see all those things come true while we're filming this with his film, um, you know, was, was uh, you know, was amazing. And so that's that's kind of wh- where the film is, is right now is, um, you know, the stuff that we filmed before and then chronicling the, the success of the film, the overnight success of this movie. Wow, I'm really excited. To see. Is he going to do a commentary for the movie too? Yeah. Yeah, he's already actually done a commentary, but but he's been talking about doing another one. Whether or not that'll happen remains to be seen. But <laughs> but the, actually the um actually the, the, the full documentary is not going to be on the DVD. Oh, it's actually going to be a feature in and of its own. Oh, yeah, that's that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. When so. is that when is that maybe going to come out? Do you guys have an idea? Well, the story's still kind of going on, but the but the post production is underway. So um, I don't know. We, we're looking at first quarter of next year to to premiere it. Right now, is that right, guys? Yeah, I say that's that, that's about right. I mean, we're just gonna. I mean, I mean, this, I mean, the, the 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 stuff we have is so great. So we really want to just take the time to make sure that it it's it, it's as good as it can be. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I'm I'm excited for the DVD release and. Just as excited, and maybe even more, for this documentary. I'm fascinated by this guy. I mean, just in cool. this conversation. Yeah, yeah, you should you should be. Um, <laughs> but there are uh, there are uh, there are still going to be a load of really cool special features on on the DVD as well. So there's just a a whole uh, Winian world that you have uh, before you. <laughs> Winian world is it now? Future. Is that coming out this this uh, before Christmas? The the Burdell? Actually, no. The, the the DVD is also coming out uh, early next year. Okay, excellent. February, we think. Excellent. Um, and have you guys gotten sort of uh, set up to do any sort of DVD stuff or or beyond that with his next movie? I knew I know there's a movie called Peephole the Perver- Perverted. Is that prior to this or after Burdemic? Or well, well. Peephole's an interesting story. Uh, <laughs> Should we talk about people, guys? Yeah, I'd love to hear about this. Yeah, why don't John? Why don't you start by talking about what happened at the pandemic premiere, and then I guess Evan, you can. Uh, John was the most enthusiastic about. People. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. When when James started talking about a follow up to Birdemic, the the height, you know, because James is sort of a savant when it comes to these sort of high concept, low execution type films. <laughs> And the title that he threw out that just garnered the most instantaneous enthusiasm was was Peephole, colon, The Perverted. And, um, you know, we thought it was a natural fit for something that he could be making while we were wrapping up all this other Birdemic stuff, something that he could do relatively quickly, a la Psycho, because it's basically his, his Psycho pastiche. Wow. And... Um, we signed a development deal with him, but it was it had some out clauses in it, and uh, we handed him a large check at the premiere, uh, as the English say. So uh, that's that's, and I, I guess Evan can take it from there. 
Yeah, well, when we first met up with James, uh, when we first started filming the documentary, we hadn't seen him since January, so it was definitely about six or seven months had gone by. And so we uh, we uh, met up with him, and um, we took this uh, very special road trip with him um, from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And um, he told us about – he just kind of blurted out what his next movie idea was. And, uh, you know, I was like, this is genius. Um, and it was an idea for this movie called Peephole the Perverted, which was inspired um, uh, inspired from the – was it um, Aaron Andrews, right? That's what her name is? Yeah, Aaron Andrews from ESPN. Yeah, it was one of the ESPN. Do you remember that story where some guy had the, you know... He was stalked, basically, and some guy filmed her through uh, a hole that he had had drilled in a bedroom, in a hotel room door. Wow. And uh, so James inspired, you know, again, taking stories out of the headlines, um, (laughs) had come up with this movie People, which was supposed to be a modern-day psycho um, about um, a serial killer who stalks um, um, eleven to twelve quote eleven to twelve beautiful girls, and um, then he kills them and then uploads it to YouTube, and then he's got this whole city in you know um, up in fear uh, about this, and then um, you know so when we told us about this, it seemed like a straight up horror movie, obviously. So we you know we were asking him you know is this is this a departure from the romantic thriller genre? <laughs> For you, and he said no. Uh, uh, the uh, serial killer um, kills romantically. <laughs> and uh, and just as an aside, Evan did actually do a. Uh, oh God! <laughs> he did an audi- he did an audition for the lead role, which was quite spectacular. How far are we going to go with that description? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we were all really enthusiastic about people, and uh, actually. The- <clears throat> night that we signed the deal with James, we went out um, on the town, and uh, and he he told me that I have the look, <laughs> and that he he wants me to audition for the for the peephole killer, and I was more than happy to do so. Very uh, enthusiastic audition. Let's just 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 leave it there. <laughs> yeah. So what? And he actually cast me. He says, "Man, you are the peephole, man. You're you're the yeah. people." Yeah. And. and uh, well, I was going to say, where is it now as far as production? What's going on with it? Well, that's, yeah, that's it. Unfortunately, he decided as as um, as Birdemic was getting bigger that he wanted to actually concentrate on Birdemic, the resurrection, rather than people, because oh. people was a little was a little dark, you know, for his for his uh, fan base, which is more into his kind of, like, fun fun world. Wow, so there's a Birdemic sequel in the works. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> Wow. So are you guys going to be involved in any way in helping getting him financing? Like, what's your relationship with him now as far as moving forward with films? It's sort of an hour-by-hour proposition, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think we could just leave it at that. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough, yeah. Now, that's an exciting development. Both. I I hope he comes back to Peephole, though, because that sounds... Pretty amazing. I mean, wouldn't you rather see people than Birdemic 2? I would. I mean, I really want to see him branch out. You know, I want to see what he's capable of in any and every genre. You know, that's my take. Um, exactly. But, uh, wow, fantastic. Thank you, guys. Um, all right, well, let me move into the the sort of more general film questions. This is sort of will help, help too. I'm very curious, like, what were some of the films that inspired you guys to get involved with the business as you are now? Uh, and one of my first questions to each of you is like, what is some of your earliest genre film memories? Something that really got your attention when you were younger, maybe that stuck with you. And and I don't, whoever wants to go is 
first is great. Okay, well, um, King Kong was one of the first films I saw. Um, Curse of the Werewolf, the Hammer film, was one of the first films I saw on TV. And then, but I think as far as uh, as far as actual an inspirational time was probably when VHS came in when we started seeing the more kind of uh, gruesome movies from Europe, like you know the Fulches and the Francos and whatnot. John, John or Evan? Go ahead, Evan. I have boring answers because I'm substantially younger. So, um, <laughs> but um, I guess I think my earliest genre film memories were I grew up in Minneapolis, and they were uh, they actually filmed Mystery Science Theater 3000 like a mile away from where I grew up, nice. and so we were introduced to that very early on um, as a kid. So a lot of my early genre film memories were, you know, watching a lot of the, the Gamera films they started out with and, you know, Pod People, of course, um, and, uh, you know, Side Hackers, all those early episodes, um, we definitely were keeping up with that. So that was sort of like, because I was, uh, I'm trying to think, I think that was like the earliest um, genre film memories that I have were definitely introduced by Mr. Science Theater. Yeah, for me, I think that, like, the seminal experience was being able to sneak down when I was five or six years old and watch HBO in the middle of the night, which would have been in the early 80s. And it's one of those things where I couldn't even tell you the names of certain films that really made an impression on me, but just seeing, you know, things that sort of like the early days of Skinamax on Cinemax a couple years later, and that kind of stuff was really... uh, you know, it, it had sort of an aggregate effect, I would say, rather than, like, one film that was, like, a bolt out of the blue. I mean, I, I'd probably have to get into, like, junior high school years to talk about specific, specific films. But like not, I remember Felicity. not Felicity? Well, Felicity, I was in junior high when I saw that. So, you know, that, 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 that was already late in the game. But, like, I remember my father going out of his way to show me Night of the Living Dead when I was eight years old. And, uh, you know thinking that was a lot was a very funny movie but then i remember seeing zelig at the same time and that movie scared the crap out of me <laughs> yeah I, I found zelig to be a terrifying movie when i was eight years old but night of the living dead was a uh, was sheer comedy to me at that point what, what was it about zelig that that frightened you it was something about the tone. It was something, you know, because I realized that I, I, a lot of the stuff they would show in HBO in the middle of the night were these sort of docudramas about disasters where tons of people died. <laughs> and somehow I think I psychically linked Delhi to those movies. Like, I just remember, I mean, I was scarred for life by some of the things I saw in HBO during that period. Um, and Zelly somehow, like, linked in with that. And another film I remember seeing that, um, just made a like a huge effect on me was uh, Life and Times of Harvey Milk. Um, you know, like I, I think I was probably ten years old when I saw that movie for the first time, ten or eleven, and that like having like a profoundly chilling effect on me. Like that that film lingered with me for a long, long time. Yeah, that that does a, that totally sticks with you. I, I I understand your reaction to that film for sure. Um, and I had no one to talk about it with at that point, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, you guys are in a unique position in that my second question is really sort of about movies that you guys would love to see on DVD. And obviously you guys, that's what you do. So um, <clears throat> is there films, obviously there's a lot of films probably that you guys really want to see on DVD that you seek out 
the materials for and try to release. Um, can you talk about some stuff? I mean, it could be stuff you guys have in the works or stuff that is sort of you really want to get or that you just would generally, maybe you guys wouldn't be connected to it at all, but you'd love to see put out on DVD. Well, for me, the Holy Grail is, is Santa Sangre, the Jodorowsky film, which um, I guess is from 1989. I saw it in a theater when it first came out and um, it had quite a big release over here. Well, a big art house release over here when it first came out. And it's just a spectacular movie, which has not really had a decent release on DVD. And there's been all kinds of weird rights issues with it. So it still remains unreleased at this point. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, Okay. Um, So films that I'd want to see on DVD. Well, I guess I can, um, I mean, David and John are probably both going to sigh when they, when they, uh, (laughs) every talk about this, because I talk about it a lot. But um, a film that I, I would love to see, I, Kind of going with what your question was about films that maybe will never be put on DVD for whatever reason. Um, a film that I was actually recently exposed to was a film called The Beaver Trilogy. Oh, wow. Uh, Trent, Trent Harris, right? Yeah, have you seen it? Yes. Yeah. That, that, that film was, uh, that, that film actually blew me away. I, I, I could not, uh, the, the uh, end result of watching all three parts of that movie were, was, I thought, one of, the, one of the best things I've seen all year uh, and most unique, of course. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a really unique, unique... I love Trent Harris since I saw Ruben and Ed, which I still think is a great film. Which uh, is also not available. Yeah, that's that's one I personally would love to see. On yeah, the- I've investigated that one, actually. That's one of the films that was repossessed by the Screen Actors Guild. Really? Um, yeah, there's, there's, a, um, there's a list of maybe 10 or 12 films that usually make people's best films we haven't seen on DVD that have a direct link to some point having been uh, taken over by, by SAG, basically. What does that so, mean as far as rights if SAG is in control? Well, it's a, it's a bit gray, actually, because SAG basically holds, holds an auction every year where they sell off the rights to these movies, but um, then when the, a person buys that movie, um, they don't necessarily get the elements with it, so there's not really uh, not really anything you can do with it. And obviously, the person who actually really owns the movie is going to be like, "Well, hang on, I'm not going to giving you my elements for a movie I spent, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on, you know, which has just basically been seized by the Screen Actors Guild." So it becomes like a very difficult situation. Yeah, but but you know, it is it is you know some some movies do come back out that way. Mm. Yeah, I would love to see that come. Evan, sorry, coming back to the Beaver Trilogy, can you explain to people the, oh. the film? It's a really unique film. Sure. Um, well, Trent Harris, um, I don't know the whole backstory and how it came to be, but I'll, I'll try my best. Um, just, just explain, if you can summarize it, because I have trouble summarizing Okay, it. all right. Basically, Trent Harris, um, I think, was working for either a public uh, access station at the time, um, and he's from Salt Lake City, Utah. And he takes a road trip out um, to Beaver, Utah, where I believe he's testing out some camera equipment. Um, and, he, and he's in a parking lot, and he has sort of a chance meeting with this guy named Gary, who um, strangely looks like Spicoli in a weird way. He's kind of a Spicoli-looking guy. And um, uh, he approaches uh, Trent with the camera, um, and while he's holding the camera. And this is all real footage. It's, this, it's, a, it's a feature film broken up into three short films, where the first is a documentary. Um, and so this guy, Gary goes to explain how, um, he does impressions and, and so on and so on and so forth. And he does really bad impressions of, um, John Wayne and, uh, Sylvester Stallone and, and, um, all the, all the footage he's getting is quite embarrassing because the impressions are pretty awful. 
And then the guy goes to explain how he's obsessed with um, Olivia Newton-John. And um, he goes to show the, uh, 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 the the camera guy how he has Olivia Newton-John etched into his uh, windshield of his um, of his muscle car and so on and so forth. And then uh, Trent Harris basically says, um, well, is there any good stories here in Beaver, Utah that I should I should document? And uh, the guy's like, oh, I don't... Uh, I don't, I don't think there's anything here. I can't think of anything, but maybe maybe I'll call you if I find, figure out something. So then many months later, he sends him a letter saying, I finally figured out what your story should be about Beaver. It's actually about me. Um, I'm going to be performing at this um, high school talent show, and he's like 24, um, where I'm going to be performing as um, Olivia Newton-Don, which is me. <laughs> and so then uh, Trent Harris thinks it's going to be pretty funny, so he basically loads up his car and goes out there and meets um, Gary at a mortuary where that's the only place where he can get his makeup finished. Um, and so he's getting basically dr- uh, dressed up in drag to um, perform as Olivia Newton-John to do this impression. And it's very creepy how um, he seems very uncomfortable with being dressed up in, a, uh, in drag or, 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 or how he's trying to convey the fact that he's not dressing up in drag. He's doing this because he's obsessed with Olivia Newton-John and he has to do this. And so then he basically, uh, then Trent Harris follows him out and films this transcendental performance of him uh, doing Olivia Newton-John, which is incredible. And then the, then the short ends there, pretty much. And um, it, then I would assume that Trent got completely obsessed with this this character. And then a couple years le- later, he met a pre-Fast Times... Um, uh, uh, Sean Penn. Thank you. Sean Penn. Um, who uh, they got together and spent about $100 to recreate that documentary in a dramatic <laughs> sense, where, where Sean Penn plays um, this guy, and they added a little more context to the story to make it um, more of a, a, a narrative short. And then um, it, it's in black and white, super low budget, but it's really cool to see Sean Penn playing this, this guy. Yeah, and I, I remember the, he's putting makeup on at one point, right? Like in the Yeah. Yeah, I, that scene is forever etched into my mind. Oh, of course. It's yeah, it's very brilliant. And then um, after that short film, he met up with uh, Crispin Glover shortly before Ruben and Ed, I believe, um, uh, a very young Crispin Glover. And um, they recreated the story yet again, this time in color with a bigger budget and adding more context to the story, like what was his family life like and things like that. And the the whole film is incredible because um, uh, just the whole journey of watching all three shorts in in uh, in this succession is great because... The first part is, like, he just includes all the, the most embarrassing footage of this guy. I mean, footage that, you know, that, that could ruin somebody. You know, it's so dark and so embarrassing. And yet through going through and recreating it twice over, um, you know, um, and also including himself as a character, Trent Harris, um, it really shows that he has respect for this character and, like, going into it and, and, and like, really um, diving into who this guy is as a character, and him himself getting obsessed with this character. It's truly a very unique, one-of-a-kind movie. Yeah, I've not seen anything like it since. I yeah. have a VHS of it somewhere. Now, what's the hang-up with releasing? Have you guys looked into it at all, or is it just... Impossible? Yeah, when I when I saw the film, obviously I was very I was immediately enthusiastic about it, and I reached out to um, the director, and, I believe, and I've also heard rumor, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard rumor that Sean Penn serviced him a letter... Um, years after being successful, or first getting being successful, saying if this ever gets released, oh, no. I'm going to you know blah, blah blah, and I don't think he ever got the pri- the, the proper paperwork um, for it um, uh, for the film, and obviously the music rights for Olivia Newton John songs and yeah. so on. It's just impossible to release something like that. Such a bummer. I, I totally forgotten about the Olivia Newton John too. Yeah. Uh, 
Let's uh, yeah. People got to seek that one out in whatever form they can. I'm very curious what yeah. people would think of that. That's a great pick. Um, I, it's on his website. I think you might be able. Oh, to he get sells it. it through the site now. Excellent. I believe he does. Yeah. John, I, I'm sorry uh, for that roundabout. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious to hear your, uh, you know, not on DVD movie too. Mine would be a film called Dr. Caligari, um, which is directed by a guy named Stephen Saadian, uh, who is best known as actually an adult film director under the nom de plume uh, Rinse Dream. And uh, he directed a couple of really famous, well-known sort of art house uh, adult films during the late 70s and early 80s. But then he made this film called Dr. Caligari on video in the mid '80s, and his uh, sort of his co-screenwriter was uh, Jerry Stahl of um, Oh, nice! Night Fame. Yeah. And uh, Stahl was involved in a couple of his other projects as well. And Caligari isn't an adult film; it's a you know straight-up R-rated film at, at best. But it's a, sort of a very surrealistic, um, sort of a groovier version of Liquid Sky. Ooh. type movie. Uh, so, isn't it? I'm sorry, what? Is it from the 90s? Is it like, no, is it? it's from the 80s. Oh, 80s. And um, that's a film that, you know, once a year I try to climb the mountain uh, of the rights holders for that movie and I usually, you know, I've been knocked back but it's uh, it's never been out on DVD properly and uh, it's it's one of those films that if you if you see it you you either absolutely love it or you just don't understand it. And uh, it's that that definitely would be it is a film that I, I, I still work on in terms of trying to see if there'd be a way for us to put it out. Wow! Did it get a VHS release at least? Yes. Okay. And what and what are some of the entanglements as far as the rights that you've come across? Well, the the chief entanglement is that the director uh, has vanished from the planet. I mean, he's not dead, but he is uh, notoriously reclusive, like on a Terrence Malick-esque uh, plane of reclusive history. Wow. And, um, <laughs> and and that and that that's the that's the biggest problem. And then the rights are owned by uh, an adult film company. And, you know, adult film companies, they're, you know, they can be marvelous people. But the, the problem is, is that, you know, the, if you know anything about the history of sort of the production and financing of adult films, they're, uh, it's just a very tangled web. Let's, yeah. let's put it that way. Okay. And, um, you know, the, I, I've spoken to the rights holders and it just, it hasn't worked out yet. Cool. Cool. Um, <clears throat> Do you guys, do all three of you have a favorite Hollywood legend? Um, the example I always use is that there's supposedly Altman, like, uh, dreamt up the plot for three women and then pitched it the next day while dropping someone off, on the way to drop someone off at the airport and got a green light. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's one of my favorites. I'm just curious if you guys have a legend that you've heard from, an, from or about an actor or director that is one that's entertained you. I don't, well, I don't know. know if you'd, I don't know if you'd call it a Hollywood legend, but I always like the story that uh, David Lynch kept a shaved dead mouse in his pocket during a razor head and used to run his thumb along the texture of its skin when he was uh, when he was feeling uninspired. <laughs> wow! Yeah, I got to try one. that. That seems like it should work. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. John, do you have one? Because I don't know if I have one. Yeah. Well, I I tend to prefer sort of the old Hollywood legends. 
And my sort of I, I, one of my favorites is the one about because he's one of my favorite directors is about the way that F.W. Murnau died, mm. um, the guy who directed The Last Laugh and Taboo and Sunrise. Yeah, uh, and, Yes. Yeah, but, and the the legend is is that he died. You know, the the official story is he just died in a car accident. But the legend was that he died in the car accident because he was servicing his fourteen year old Filipino houseboy who was driving at the time. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what the rating of this podcast is, but I'll oh, it's, it it's wide open. It's wide okay. open. Nothing, nothing is off limits. Well, he's uh, giving oral pleasure to his 14-year-old Filipino houseboy and caused him to go off the road. So yeah. he, had, he was his 14-year-old houseboy was drive would drive him around apparently. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a different time. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, it seems a bit hazardous. You know, maybe maybe not the best choice. Oh, don't really. knock it if you've tried. <laughs> <laughs> that was. Um... <laughs> That, that was that's probably comes from uh, from Kenneth Ango, right, John? That, that you got that story. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's pre Kenneth Anger, but Kenneth Anger discusses it as well. Right, because I, I but, saw an interview with Kenneth Anger once, where and I and I can't remember the name of the um, the failed Hollywood starlet. You may not have been failed actually, but there, but I don't think this story is in Hollywood Babylon. I could be wrong, but it, there was a story of this actress who basically was was not getting the attention that she needed, so she decided she was going to have the most. Uh, uh, stars, uh, she was going to have a star appropriate suicide. So she, uh, so she laid herself out on her bed and, you know, looking all perfect with makeup on and everything and took a whole load of pills and, uh, and laid herself out and just, you know, was expecting, you know, variety and everyone to be like, oh, the most beautiful corpse. But what happened was the police came in like four days later and there was vomit all over the walls and vomit all over the bathroom and everything was smashed and she died by slipping on her own vomit and hitting her head against the sink or against the toilet bowl and so she was found and she was also like kind of slightly decaying so her her master plan didn't work but I don't remember who it was and it was the way Kenneth Anger told it that that made it just this spectacularly sad Hollywood story but I guess that's what he does wow oh my gosh Um, (laughs) excuse me um, well, this—I mean, you guys maybe have touched on this a little bit, but if you could have uh, lunch with any actor or director that's not alive today, I'm—I'm I'm always curious what people's choices would be. Well, mine would be Todd Browning because there's too much too much unanswered about uh, about the life of that guy who directed well, he directed the original Dracula with Bela Lugosi, but his career was destroyed by directing Freaks. He did a couple more movies after that, but Freaks was uh, spectacularly scandalous and banned all over the place and stuff like that. And also he was, you know, did a load of Lon Chaney movies in the 20s and um, and just apparently had a fascinating life, the whole run, running away with the uh, with the circus when you're, with, when you're a kid story, but that apparently may not be true. I don't know. Wow. So I would actually quite like to get some of that. And he was a legendary boozer, so I think it would be an enjoyable lunch. <laughs> Six martini lunch, nice. Mm-hmm. Boy, I don't know, man. That's a tough question. Yeah, it's kind of a pain in the ass question. I apologize, but it's 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 one that I love to hear people try to answer at least. Yeah, for me, it would be uh, in terms of like you know not like obvious ones like Orson Welles and stuff. There, one of my personal heroes is, was Leo McCary. Oh, I love uh, Leo McCary. Yeah, and it, just in terms of a guy that you know will never you. you you think about him, you don't, you know, he, he might, 
I guess he's probably the best known for the guy who directed, you know, like Going My Way. But or Doug you know, Soup. I, I love Doug Soup. Yeah, well, exactly. Like when you think about his earlier movies and sort of like the stories that I've always heard about his directorial style, which was very anarchic, especially uh, you know within the studio system at that time. And you know, Duck Soup is one of my all-time favorite movies. And, Me too. And the Awful Truth. What Awful Truth is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, maybe even more than Duck Soup. And uh, he just, you know, just in terms of the, what I've heard about his behavior on set, the way that he would come up with things uh, at the piano. I, I don't know. He's just one of those guys that I've always found very personally interesting. Yeah, what I've read about him, I've really been fascinated by, too. I think The Awful Truth, it was funny. I watched with my wife and my son about maybe four months mm -hmm. ago, and we were just busting up laughing. I mean, it is still very, very funny to this day. Definitely. Yeah, it hasn't aged at all. No. Uh, it, it's one of those movies like His Girl Friday that's still... I think it's better, very... than, better than His Girl Friday. That's my take. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Cause, and I think it's because it's got that sort of, you know, eight-shit quality to it that still translates to uh, sort of today's comedic vernacular. Yeah, and I mean, uh, beyond, sorry, beyond uh, Awful Truth, Make Way for Tomorrow, which was so great to see on DVD, finally is one of the most heartbreaking films I've ever seen in my life. Well, that's what I mean. Like, he had such a wide palette because then, yeah, he could direct Weepies because he also did, I think, the original Love Affair. Yeah, uh, that's good, too. Yeah, so it's, it's you know, he did An Affair to Remember later in his career. So it's it's a very uh, eclectic output um, and directed classics sort of in, in uh, multiple genres. So Yeah, very talented. Evan, do you have anybody that's even well, close? I mean, you could name a couple if there's a tie or something. Well, I mean, I could also um, combine this with the previous question, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I guess this, this film's just been on the brain lately, and it's a completely probably, um, I don't know. I'm not trying to be uh, too obscure with this answer, but um, have you ever seen um, a film called Tales from the Quad Dead Zone? No, but I've heard of it. I've heard of it in the same sentence with, like, Devil Doll from Black Devil Doll from Hell and some other yeah, stuff. I it's, want it's, to see it badly. It's it's the same director and it actually just got a, I can't believe it just got um announced actually coming on a DVD both his Oh wow, Fancy. wait, uh, Black Devil Doll too? Yeah, Black Devil Doll from Hell and Tales from the Quad Dead Zone got announced and um I think the guys over at Rotten Cotton are doing it. And uh, and and the, the, there's a whole legend surrounding the film. Well, basically I'll, a little introduction to the movies. It's basically like a omnibus uh, bizarro horror movie anthology, three structures uh, thing, and it's shot on video and it um, is directed by a guy named Chester uh, Novel Turner who's sort of a cult commodity now and he basically I, there's just it's just something that basically exists something a Harmony Corinne would probably strive for to make, <laughs> but it's just this uh, you know, it's a, such a bizarre film that just exists and there are so many questions you have when you see something like this, uh, and it's it's basically a three part um, film um, about this um, uh, woman who has an invisible son, um, and the creative low budget ways they do to portray that are hilarious. <laughs> uh, and um, basically, they're they're um, just these bizarre, um, very poetic, almost stories about like a family who gathers, and there are eight people in the family. They only have food enough for five people, and so then. Um, you know, they have to, like, uh, ring a bell, and the first person to grab the sandwich gets it, but then 
then they introduce a gun where like the, the guy goes on a killing spree, killing his family, so there's down to five people, so they have enough food. And it just becomes really poignant and eerie and also hilarious, but very bizarre movie. And it's something that um, I just have to know where it came from. Um, and hopefully the people doing the DVD will, will uh, investigate that. So maybe I sort of like weird and insa- meeting weird and saying crazy people. So I guess maybe that would, uh, just because that, that's been on my brain, that would be someone I know who's actually passed on now. That they found out the guy who directed both those films. I would love to just meet him and find out how it all happened. That's cool. That's really that's really exciting that those two are getting an official DVD release. That's that's pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, Black Devil Doll is a little um, is, is is a harder one to sit through. I think actually, Tales from the Quiet Zone is a good film. is an, is an interesting, um, insane, uh, bizarre piece of work that um, needs to be seen to to be believed. Uh, it's it's incredible. Nice. Um, I'll be looking for that for sure. Um, well, this is, I don't know if you guys will, how you'll feel about this question, but two of the sort of patron saints of the podcast, the Gentleman's Guide podcaster, Charles Bronson and Henry Silva, they come a lot, up a lot in the reviews that we do and whatnot, and if you guys have a favorite um, obscure film for, from either one, I'd be very curious to hear what it is. We're always looking for Charles Bronson and Henry Silva film recommendations, basically. Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it obscure, but I'm. I'm. I'm a huge uh, Death Wish Three fan. Oh, I am yeah, so with you, David. I am yeah. so with you. I think Death Wish Three is awesome. I actually enjoy it more than Death Wish One and Two, which may be blasphemy, but nope. it's such a wild, uh, ridiculous. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously Michael Winner was way more into uh, being a uh, a culinary critic by this point, <laughs> not really into filmmaking because it was just so. It's just so absurd that that performance, and just the fact that Martin Balsam just hangs out of windows watching yes. all this hem going on while 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 Bronson's just walking through streets, just shooting bad guys. It's fantastic. I just it's can't sad. believe that they brought that movie production into Brownsville, Brooklyn, and what. <laughs> Yeah, I know that is pretty. <laughs> Where actually, actually, that just as an example of of just how how little uh, Michael Winner gave a shit at the time was we just did an interview with the stunt coordinator Rocky Taylor because he's uh, he did the stunts on Psychomania, which is a British biker zombie film we're bringing out in October, and uh, I guess his career was kind of. Um, uh, changed forever on Death Wish Three because the the, the requisite safety uh, requirements were not adhered to, and Rob Taylor <laughs> got like seriously injured, unfortunately. So, wow. but subsequently became a stunt coordinator as opposed to a stunt man. So has has done just fine. But uh, he he was not too amused by Michael Winner's approach. But bottom line is Death Wish Death Wish Three is just a ridiculously enjoyable movie. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It is it is one of my one of my favorites. One that I wore out the VHS tape that I had of it, and uh, I will I will talk anybody's ear off about Death Wish Three that wants to. I think it's I mean the cast alone. You got Ed Lauder. You've got uh, what's the female lead's name? I'm blanking on it right now. Deborah Raffin. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean it is just a uh, beautiful film. Great yep. choice, Evan. What do you think? Um, another uh, well, um, my favorite um, like in terms of good, uh, I'd say uh, Charles Bronson would be. Uh, probably the mechanic. I think John was same for you, right? Yeah, yeah. Mine would be the mechanic. That's a great film. I love it. Yeah, the ending alone. I mean, oh, uh, but um, I think the uh, for hilarity and for bizarreness, uh, the runner-up would be uh, the White Buffalo. I think for me, <laughs> I still haven't seen that. I really need to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to see that. That is uh, that's uh, pretty pretty. And, the, and again, an, another like head-scratching cast in that movie. 
you know, uh, Charles Bronson, Slim Pickens, uh, Kim Novak is even in it for a second. So. Um, and Silva, do you guys like Henry Silva, or are you not huge fans of his? Oh, we like Henry Silva. All right, excellent. <laughs> What's What are some odd Silva films that you guys enjoy? Well, David knows him personally. Oh, yeah, really? I got a. Uh, I, I wouldn't know that. I, I wouldn't say that I know too many odd silver films. I mean, I don't uh, mean odd, like, but like obscure, because I feel like there's a lot of film. He's done so many films, and I think some slip through the cracks. That's yeah, so amazing he, that you know him, David. That's fantastic. well, no, I, I actually. It's not that I actually know him. It's uh, you know he was in Bronx Warriors Two, which is an Enzo Castellari film, and we throw. <laughs> We threw the 70th birthday party oh, for yeah, Castellari right. when uh, when we did the uh, Inglorious Bastards launch, and um, and we were trying to contact all the actors uh, who may be local who could come along to this party. And Henry Silver called me and did not specifically remember Enzo, unfortunately. Oh. But uh, but you know when I jogged his memory about the movie, he was you know very very cordial and very nice, but unfortunately didn't make the party. But uh, but you know se- several others did you know Fred Williamson, Bo Svensson, and Lou Ferrigno and uh, Ed Burns, Ed Ed Cookie Burns, Ed Cookie. I was gonna say you gotta say <laughs> Cookie when you call out his name. Wow, but so so what do you, David? Do you have one that you like that's a little off the beaten path or not? Well, I wouldn't say it's obscure, but I'm a big Alligator fan. No, he's great in that. That is one of his best. I agree. John, what do you think? Yeah, no, I'm I'm still stuck on the mechanic. I mean, I could I, I could play cool and throw out something to you, but I, I'll I'll I, I really really like the mechanic. So. That's cool. That's cool. Well, good deal. Um, do you guys have a favorite made-for-TV movie? These are always curious too. Yeah, I mean the um, the the '70s was such a uh, was such a great era for for made-for-TV horror movies like um, Trilogy of Terror and Salem's Lot and. Um, there's one called Don't Don't Go to Sleep, which has like a terrifying ending. Um, but in Eng- in England, we had a, a a show called Hammer House of Horror, which has been released on DVD over here, and that was definitely had the biggest influence on me because I was like eight years old when we used to watch that at nine o'clock on a Saturday night, and episodes like um, Children of the Full Moon and The House That Bled to Death, and mm. the one with Peter Cushing called Silent Scream. Um, I mean, these these things are just just terrifying for a kid. They're kind of kind of hokey now, but they're uh, I don't know. They're still pretty good. I mean, I watched some of them recently, and and uh, if you can get over the cheap production values, they're actually pretty still still pack a punch. Or maybe it's just nostalgia for me that I still find them scary. I don't know. I've never heard of those. I have to I have to look into that. That's oh yeah, it's a really really good series. Hammer House of Horror. Cool. Um. I, I haven't seen a lot of them except for the you know the major ones like Trilogy of Terror and Salem's Lot and It and things like that. But um, let's see. Um, recently, recently, I guess I'll just go with what I've seen most recently because it's the easiest off the top of the head. But um, well, first I saw I revisited When a Stranger Calls um, recently again. I don't know if you've seen that at all. Uh, the original, anytime re- in the recent time, but the the uh, beginning and end of that movie are still very terrifying. The middle is always very clunky, but that first fifteen minutes of that urban legend of the babysitter um, with, the, with the killer inside the house and things like that is still holds up. I agree. And when I when I brought that up to somebody, they said, "Well, have you seen When a Stranger Calls Back?" The, uh, <laughs> uh, TV uh, sequel, and um, that film, um, uh, the director sort of. Try you know tries to outdo like he tries to outdo himself with what he set up from the film version of it, 
And it's a much longer, um, thorough um, opening to that of that same you know urban legend, and it's it's better. It's t- it's it's scarier. The really, I've not seen this. I, I've seen it, but I don't remember it. Now I need to revisit for sure. You should, I just saw it recently. You should um, definitely crack it down and 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 watch it. That's also something that very uh, that also holds up. Cool. Wow. But I don't know. Um, like I like I've seen Bad Ronald, which I don't know if that really held up. Uh, I'm sure it was pretty crazy in its day. I still think that holds up. I mean, I, I saw it. I don't remember seeing it as a kid, and I watched it when the Warner yeah TV came out. And it's crazy that that came out. I it's guess pretty nuts. I think it's pretty nuts. But you're right. I mean, as opposed to compared to something now, it's not as shocking. But it's pretty pretty weird movie. It is. It is that that was definitely broadcast on television. I guess it's pretty. Uh, but no, that's fair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess uh, when a stranger calls back, just because he set out to try to outdo himself, and I think that he might he may have succeeded, with it just being uh, uh, pretty pretty ridiculous. Well, that's I mean that's a fascinating thing. There's the the made for TV sequel to the uh, you know officially released Hollywood film. Like I'm thinking of some that I discovered recently, which I didn't know existed. Were like The Jerk Two and I think uh-huh. Splash Two. I think they're oh yeah Splash Two. And they're both pretty awful, you know, as you might expect. But I didn't, I didn't even know they existed until recently. Revenge of the Nerds 4, wasn't that TV? Yep, yeah, that's, yeah. that sucks too. That's so good at all. Yeah. Um, John, what is your, you like, uh, have some TV movies that you like? Yeah, um, um, it's something that I'm not particularly proud of, but I went through a stage, a very heavy stage, where I had a huge fetish for... Um, eating disorder movies, made-for-TV eating disorder <laughs> movies. Best little girl in the world. Um, yeah, and um, sort mm-hmm. of like the Ben-Hur of that genre is this movie called A Secret Between Friends, which Ooh. was the Lifetime movie. I don't know this. And, oh, oh, you should stop this interview and go find it. <laughs> I will. I will. Uh, yeah. A it, secret it is uh, unrelentingly awesome. It's actually a film that I also would have made my holy grail list of films that are unavailable on DVD. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, it's sheer shimmering genius, is what wow. it is. It's about these two teenage girls that enter an eating disorder pact to see who can out eating disorder. <laughs> oh yeah, so, it's sort of like it's sort of like a Trading Places type movie. No, it's it's and, and um, it's it's actually got like Ryan Reynolds, like a, a pubescent Ryan Reynolds is in it. It's uh, it's 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 just it's everything you would want in an eating disorder movie. They'll they'll never top <laughs> it. Are you are you a big fan of the best little girl in the world? What are your thoughts on that one? Ah, it's, it's okay. once you see, yeah, it's okay. Um, there's that one. I actually like that one with Meredith Baxter Bernie. I think it's called Kate's Secret. Don't know that. Uh, Damn. Yeah. Oh, then you need to watch more Lifetime. You're obviously having the married. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, Lifetime. It's incredible. <laughs> is this a, is yeah. this a Lifetime movie, John? Yes, it is. Yeah, oh. that's that's why it's unavailable. I've actually investigated the secret between friends. Um, I think. Uh, well, it, it should also be noted that the title is the official title is a secret between friends colon a moment of truth movie. <laughs> which sort of makes it like a James Wynn movie I mean anytime it's a, like, a colon is another one like I just like cautionary tale made for TV movies in general like I mean I've always loved the um, it's only a half hour long but the one that they made with Ben Affleck about steroids before Ben Affleck was famous I've heard a about body this. to die for. a body yeah, like 
Yeah. Oh, no. um, you know, that, that, that tends to be how I spend my off hours. <laughs> so, so with the Lifetime movies, they just tend to hang on to those to rerun them and they don't want to release them on DVD? Is that the deal? Or? Yeah, should... I mean, it's, it's, I, I have it on tape just because I taped it off of television like 15 years ago. Um, but, but yeah, they're, they are, they're even worse than the adult film industry when it comes to tracking down, right? <laughs> Tagline. Tagline. They actually, they actually work in, and they actually work in the same area. Their offices are, are, are very close to one another. Wait, out uh, you there said, in the back. sorry, you said that the tagline was interesting for this? The uh, tagline is, she'll be dead before she's thin enough. <laughs> <laughs> Two friends keep their vomiting a secret until one friend almost dies. Wow. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's a, that's going. I'm going to try and track that down this week. That's going to be something. Oh, it's I it's not that hard to track down. You can actually watch it in you on YouTube in in you know like ten parts. Excellent. Um, yeah, I, I, like I said, it's not something I'm particularly proud of. But uh, those are my favorites, awesome. though. When you prefaced with that, I'm like, this is going to be good. This is yeah. Gonna be good. <laughs> can you tell us some more. Yeah, what are some other TV movies or not? Some things you're not oh. proud that you're a fan of. I yeah, want to know. That's interesting. <laughs> you really, you really want to get I into really, this? I just, yeah, I'd love to. I'm curious. Throw a couple titles up. <laughs> the Karen well, Cup there, star. There, there's a uh, there, there's all. Well, there was another one called For the Love of Nancy. Uh, which is like a girl that goes to who starts her eating disorder starts in college, um, and uh, man, I don't know. I I'm going to get in so much trouble with so many people that I know for going in. I okay, well, don't, we don't want to embarrass you. That's okay. That's too much, anyway. You know, that's yeah. fine. But I'm fascinated. I, right away when you open that door, I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Very cool. All right, well, I'm yeah. going to the well, next. It, 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 yeah, it's it's a very underappreciated genre of um, you know what you know you call like bad filmmaking. So, um, and a exploitation. <laughs> exploitation. That's great. I like that. I like it almost as much as uh, aerobic exploitation, which is one of my favorite underappreciated genres. Killer workouts, man. Killer workouts, heavenly bodies, the non the non horror stuff. You know, the flash dance knockoffs and stuff. It's all good stuff. Um, anyway, uh, do you guys have a favorite disaster film? I'm a big fan of disaster films. Mine will always be the original Poseidon Adventure, just because I saw it when I was when I was very very young, and um, and it actually scared the shit out of me more than any horror movie of of my childhood did. And I don't know if it was something to do with the fact that we used to take a boat from from England to to France on holiday and stuff. But I'd been on big boats, so just the the, the whole, the whole, you know, people walking around in the distance, the boat's upside down, everybody's dead, you're just not going to make it, and <laughs> nobody really does make it at the end, you know, and it's just, it was just terrifying. And actually, we, we got to, um, we got to do a commentary with the, with the director, Ronnie Deem, recently, when he was 99 years old, just a few months ago, unfortunately, he's passed away since yeah. then. Don't so I was... Right. Yeah, I was very, uh, I was very excited to meet Ronnie Neen, the man who uh, resp- was responsible for for a ton of childhood nightmares for me. Well, mm. just a lot of great films too. He is a fantastic director. He sure is. Yeah, he sure is. Um, Evan, what about you? Birdemic. <laughs> there we go. There good you answer. Know. Good answer. That is a good answer. You know, I, you know, I, I don't think you can. Uh, well, Birdemic too might might top. <laughs> the plot, yeah, wait till you hear the story of Birdemic. <laughs> Pretty nuts, John? but 
Um, I like uh, Food of the Gods. Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. Good old Bird Eye Gordon. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's in terms of the disaster film I've actually watched the most times, um, that would be number one, because I've probably seen that film 20 or 30 times. Wow. In various, well, in various states of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. There's something evident, like eminently watch about, watchable about most films that have Marjo Gortner for some reason to me. I don't know what it is about him. It's oddly compelling. Yeah. I, 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 the giant chicken is what makes it oddly watchable for me. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the sequel? I've never seen the sequel. Okay, very cool. Um, so do you guys uh, have a favorite film reference book or even like a biography, anything relating to film? I'm always looking for recommends for good film books. Okay, well, um, I, I, Shock Value is my favorite film book. I mean, that's book. that's the the John Waters book. But um, but in terms of film reference books, they seem to they seem I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they seem to be kind of obsolete now because you know um, online film references are so much more uh, immediately updatable and accessible. But I mean, I used to like the Guide for the Film Fanatic by by Danny Peary and. Um, you know, horror-related ones like the Orem Encyclo- Encyclopedia of Horror and the Psychotronic Encyclopedia. Yeah. Again, you know, all that information now is 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 so dated compared to what you can get online. But I, I mean, I still have them. I still refer to them. But it's true. I'm a, I'm a gigantic fan of uh, the the Perry books. I love Guide for the Film Fanatic, and I actually did an interview with Danny Perry uh, recently uh, for a magazine. Uh, he's one of my personal heroes. Like I discovered that book, I think about 15 years ago, uh-huh. and, and it's been like a bible to me. I've been going through it for 15 years. I mean, it is dated, you're right, but the list, just the list of films alone, has been inspirational. But yeah, it's it's great. It was great for that reason because it because it basically had a bunch of stuff in there when I first got it that I that I really had never heard of, and it was across all genres. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Evan, what what's your favorite? Um. Let's see, film reference book? Anything, anything related. Could be film reference. Well, um, okay, film related, um, I, I really enjoyed, um, and if I would have read it recently, I probably could have answered a lot more of the Hollywood legend uh, question, but I really, really enjoy Cassavetes on Cassavetes. I really uh, enjoy that quite a bit. Very cool. Um, and then, uh, so we're allowed to include memoirs in this? Anything you want. Uh, all right. Well, in terms of reference books, in terms of the one that I've probably gone to the most over the years, it's Incredibly Strange Films. Oh, those uh, are good, yeah. Just, yeah, just in terms of, like, for professional reasons um, <laughs> in, in, over the years, you know, that I find to be very valuable. Uh, memoir-wise, I really like uh, George Sanders' memoir, uh, Memoir for Professional CAD. Uh, I'm just a huge George Sanders fan. And it's a book that's sort of hard to find, but if you can find a copy, I really, really recommend it. Um, Star of Psychomania. Oh, that's right. I forgot. That's right. Last Last film, film. he killed himself right after seeing the rough cut, apparently, in Spain. Are you serious? Is that true? That's the legend. Wow. But he didn't come back as a biker afterwards. He did not come (laughs) back as a biker. And then in terms of books of, like, filmmakers on filmmaking, I, I like Thinking in Pictures. Um, John Sales' book, and then I've always liked Sidney Lumet's Making Movies just because he talks so much about napping in it, like the value <laughs> of napping. <laughs> like, if you read, like, A Day in the Life of Sidney Lumet, he's apparently, he's only ambulatory for about two to three hours. <laughs> very vigorously napping. 
and uh, you know, and he's made a lot of great movies. And uh, so, who am I to discount the power of napping? Uh, yeah, you got to got to look at the filmography there. There's something to that. That's great. There is. <laughs> I, you, I bet. I bet. I bet when he was making you know network, he probably was only awake one to two hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if there's any sort of inverse ratio of him his awake time to the goodness of the film. He's sleeping through a lot of those good ones. Um, like how did yeah. City made, like, uh, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's I love that film. That is one of his best. Um, well, that's all the questions I have, guys. Do you, uh, you you were talking about Psychomania. Do you guys want to talk about any upcoming releases that people can look forward to from you guys? Yeah, we've got Psychomania and Crucible of Terror in, in, in October, two, two uh, British horror movies. But Psychomania is particularly awesome. Um, and it is, uh, it does have George Sanders and Beryl Reed as frog worshipping, um, uh, mediums. Uh, well, actually Beryl Reed is a medium and they know the secret to eternal life and their, uh, delinquent son finds it, finds it out. So decides to kill himself and comes back as an immortal biker and gets his biker gang to do the same. And they all just wreak havoc all around the countryside of England. So, and it has one of the coolest uh, soundtracks of early 70s horror movies. So, definitely one to look out for. Yeah, that yeah, synopsis is pretty great. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Uh, is, is there anything else we can talk about, fellas? I don't know. Are we allowed to talk about any of the other stuff yet? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, don't think, I mean, the other stuff that's announced is like Horror Express and The House That Dripped Blood, which are both um, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee movies. Horror Express is, in my opinion, one of their finest collaborations. Also has Telly Savalas in it. I was going to say, I'm a huge fan of that film and very, very excited for your release of it. Yeah, we just we just got a uh, we just got a DVD of the new transfer from the original negative in Spain, and it lo- it looks pretty great because it's one of these films that's been out bootlegged quite a lot over the years, but yeah, uh, yeah. looks nothing like this. It's uh, it's fantastic, and we just did an interview with the director and uh, got a. A host of exciting extras for for both those releases. Is that going to be a Blu-ray yeah. as well? Uh, that that one probably will, yeah, because uh, because it looks good enough to to warrant a blu Blu-ray release, but that's not certain yet. Okay. That's yeah, we have some very big announcements coming up, like in the near future, but we kind of can't talk about them today. Okay, that's cool. Do you, do you want to talk uh, about you, you? You guys would announce it through your Twitter um, stuff, maybe. Yeah, it's, at some point. Okay, now Evan, do you run the Twitter for, or who who runs the? Yeah, 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 I do. I run okay. the. He's the only one with an actual Twitter account. <laughs> yes, that's Let's true. See. I see. I see. Um, yeah, so, I'm not. I'm not into. I'm not into masturbation like everyone else is. So. <laughs> Just into bulimia. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yes, all the all the new exciting information will be will be on the Twitter, will be on our Facebook page, will be on our website. So, so people can go to twitter.com slash Severin Films. That's S E V E R I N Films, one word. That's their Twitter, and you can get their Facebook and the website from that too. Um, yeah. Well, that's really cool. I'm I so appreciate you guys talking to me today. It was a fantastic conversation. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks thank for having you. us. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I'll let you guys know this should post in maybe a week or two. Sounds good. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 